1: And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Hey, Pat, how's our old mate Jason going? I hear he's doing fantastic. In fact, he just keeps selling so much dog gear to our loyal listeners at such remarkable prices. What's he got? He's got. Um... <laughs> That's a good question. Oh, he's got everything: balls, yep. tugs, leashes. I don't think balls and tugs should be said in the same sentence. Well, oh, we just did. Okay, uh, mills. That's what Jason's. Pumping out like hot little fire mills, fire HF Mills. HF mills, yeah. Yep, he's got them all, yeah. Um, and we've done sleds. that mills episode, yeah,
2: on Patreon. So yep. a lot of people are learning about how to use the mill, yeah, and getting them from Jason. Getting he them sells from Jay.
1: sleds now, sleds and yep. parachutes. I see parachutes it, that you tested with Remy. Tested the parachute, yeah. Yep. I can confirm it inflates. I know he still doesn't have a website, I know he does <laughs> not. So if you'd like to buy something from Jason, could be a Herm Springer item. Yeah. Uh, you could get that from Jason, but you have to do it through Facebook. And in order to do that, you have to head to Einswick Dog Quip, which is how do you spell that? E I N Z W E
2: C K. Einswick. Einswick Dog Quip.
1: Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm joined in studio today by my co-host, Glenn Cook. And today, for his second appearance on the show, coming all the way from Buffalo, New York, we have Mr. Tyler Mudo. Hello. Welcome back to the show, Tyler. Great to have you back again. Thanks for having me. Always welcome, buddy. Hey, so as we're just doing all the sound checks, we're talking about weather a little bit. What's going on in Buffalo?
0: It's all kinds of craziness. We go from uh, sub-zero temperatures, which is Fahrenheit here, I know we have listeners all over. We've gone from sub-zero, which is really cold, to like 50 degrees, which, you know, is actually relatively nice within like a daytime span and then right back down to cold again. So it's been a kind of a wild ride this winter, but we've had some real, real cold, snowy weather so far.
2: And that's sub-zero Fahrenheit too, isn't it?
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, what is that? That's like probably minus, minus thirty or something. 30, yeah, yeah, at least twenty, I think.
2: There was uh, there was something I was reading yesterday while just browsing through the internet, and it was saying that there's a part in Canada which is not far from Buffalo, that is colder than Mars and the Antarctica.
0: Really? Yep. That's crazy. Yep. What well, Canada? Sas- I mean, big, or Canada or- Saskatoon or something like that.
2: Saskatoon. 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 I don't know. I don't know <laughs> how to say. Saskatchewan,
0: perhaps. Saskatchewan. It could have been, I'm
2: not sure I'm not it there's um yeah. quite a mouthful to say some of the towns in Canada, but it was saying that, yeah, it's so cold that it's colder than Mars, well, wow.
0: yeah, there's a lot of uh, areas of Canada that are named after native tribes, and those words can be a little bit cumbersome mm. for those that aren't native, yeah,
1: I remember when I was in the army there's what they say of Afghanistan right, is that there's places that are hotter and there's places that are colder, but there isn't too many places that have that temperature range where you know, from six months of the year it can go from 70 degrees Celsius temperature change you can get. Like I remember we, um oh, this is another long story, <laughs> story, probably not for this podcast, but people get rugged up so much there that you can literally blow their wall down with an explosive and then you have to go and wake them up in bed. Oh, wow. Because <laughs> they're, they're rugged up so much when it's like minus wow. 30 degrees. Anyway, that's my story. Did you hear something outside? Yeah, that's was like. <laughs> so, Tyler... When you were on last time and, and we, we were baiting, we've baited everybody that comes on the show. We say, hey, next time, why don't we talk about some dog training stuff instead of just diving into history? And that's what you're here to do. Yeah, I'm excited. So what are we talking about?
0: Well, you guys are going to leave
1: it up to me. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, um, to lead into it then, when we were
2: chatting offline, you were saying that there is a new trend popping up in the States that is alarming yourself. And to be quite honest, it's alarming us as well when we – we're talking about the topic of it, but people are bragging about the fact that their dog doesn't do any obedience.
0: Yeah, it's an odd thing. And I mean, I guess um I'm not so much alarmed by it. I do, I just think it's kind of interesting or, or silly in a certain sense. I don't wanna sound I mean, you know, to each their own. I don't really care personally. I just think it's an interesting conversation, I guess I'll put it that way, you know, to discuss why this thing might come about, this this sort of juxtaposition between like behavior modification or rehabilitation versus obedience. And I, that's really the context that I'm hearing it. We're hearing people that focus primarily on behavior mod. They go, oh, I do, I do behavior mod. I don't do obedience, which is totally a reasonable thing from a professional standpoint. Um, but then that rolls into, with some people, not all, like really like bragging that like my dog doesn't even know how to sit or mm-hmm. i don't even teach my dogs this which is i guess just sort of like a strange thing to brag about not that i think it's like a terrible thing i think you could have really well-mannered dogs that don't know obedience i mean take a look at caesar milan's dogs i mean i've i've been to his place his dogs are really well-mannered really well-behaved very very free to do whatever and and that's very beautiful but like he doesn't he's not like bragging about not teaching sit. He just doesn't do it. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's just, it's just like an odd thing to brag about. To me, it's, it's almost like this, um, like a status thing these days or like a fad. And I think it's just an interesting topic, I guess, uh, this juxtaposition between obedience and rehab and where the two overlap and, and where maybe they don't, because there is some, I think some really valid arguments, um, for not using obedience in certain ways, but I think as a whole, obedience sure makes life a lot more convenient with a dog. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's, uh, it's yeah, it's, you can go all kinds of directions there, I guess.
2: So, yeah, it's kind of, uh, it's a weird paradigm itself, isn't it? It'd be like bragging rights that my kid doesn't know how to spell and read.
0: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly, yeah. So, you know, I think um, I get it to a certain extent. And the part of it that I get that I think is completely reasonable is I think for um, a big part of, Contemporary dog training history, I think there's an over reliance on obedience. And what I mean by that is if you look at the majority of even like the dog training schools around the states today, at least the ones that I'm familiar with their curriculums, most of them don't really teach anything that's really in depth about behavior modification. Mm-hmm. What a lot of schools teach and what a lot of seminars are teaching and even what what I used to do when I was, you know, newer to dog training was really just kind of say, you know, focus on the obedience and then give the dog lots of structure by using the obedience and sort of like fingers crossed the behavior problems will go away. Mm -hmm. And I think there are a lot of situations that that works for. You might even be able to argue that the majority of situations that will ultimately work I think there's a couple problems, one being, of course, the obvious, which is it's not going to work in all situations. And if that's all that you've learned, then when you encounter the dog that, okay, the owner does all the obedience, the dog listens, they're doing like place command while they eat dinner. And when people come to the door and they're doing all the structure stuff, but when the dog's then not in command, it's still a jerk or it's like on place, but still really tense and growling or barking or, or anxious or whatever. And so if that's all you've learned, then you're kind of stuck in those cases. And then I think sort of the other side of it is, I think there's a lot of cases where that may be the most efficient path forward. Like there's some behavior problems that are really just like, you know what? No, this dog just needs to learn some basics. He's mm-hmm. had no no chance, right? But I think there's a lot of other situations where even if that would work, it's not really the most efficient way. Like it's not the obedience that's fixing the behavior problem. It's something else that took place as part of the obedience, whether that is the owner starting to behave more assertively or more consistently or instilling some other boundaries. And there may just be more efficient ways to do that because of course the reality is teaching a dog new skills takes lots of repetition. I mean, hundreds of repetitions arguably, right? Mm -hmm. And sometimes if you can kind of target the behavior problem more accurately, you don't actually need to do the obedience. You save yourself you know, thousands of repetitions, if we're, you know, summing up the, like the five main commands, for instance, you know, come sit down, heal place or whatever, you you know, you happen to teach. So I think there's scenarios where it's like a legit argument that, you know, you're better off not going the obedience route, or at least not like right off the bat. But I think that's very different from like saying, I never teach obedience or like bragging about it being like a special thing to not teach obedience that to me has too much of a, of a like fad kind of feel to it. Yeah. And I don't know. I I think it's, you know, it's interesting, but I do think it's an interesting dialogue that needs to be had as far as like not having this over reliance Mm -hmm. on sit down stay, because like your dog's not biting people because nobody ever taught it to sit. You know what I mean? Like there's, there's a lot of other reasons it's biting people.
1: I agree. I, I think I've been guilty in the past of just teaching a lot of obedience because it's something I enjoy doing. I'm good at teaching people how to do that with their dog. And so I certainly have been guilty you know, there's two behaviors I, I, I often say to people. If you have these two behaviors, you have no problems with your dog, is 100% reliable recall and a down at distance. So then mm-hmm. you can have all these big issues with your dog, but if you can call him off of anything, so if he's going to go bite someone, you no problem, and if, he's, if the problem is between you and him and you can down him and mm. he holds that down and then you can go get him, there's no problem. There's only one more I'd add to that, and that's not pulling on the lead. Yeah, sure. I think if
2: you've got all three of them, you've got the golden triad.
1: Yeah, yeah, I'd agree with that. And then, and then, uh, you know, I've where I've in the past been guilty of as well. Before I, I really understood behavior, more, maybe as well as I do now, was also just teaching focus. Like I've I've been <laughs> so guilty of this as well, as saying, "Hey, if your dog can stare at you for two minutes despite the distractions, you also have no problems regardless of what he's reactive to, because yeah. you know, in two minutes yeah. you can get that dog out of the the scenario." And for sure, yeah. I was. I was probably the opposite for a long time where I was like, you know, just with those few behaviors, there can be no problems. You can have the biggest asshole dog in the world that can be a a total fucker when you're out, but if you can (laughs) do those things, and if your trigger is whatever, like why bother, if your trigger, especially if it's a, a peculiar trigger that your dog reacts to, why bother seeking it out all the time to put your dog through that when you can just bring him into focus and he doesn't even see the trigger. And that was a while ago, I think before, I understood behavior mod to be, you know, as important as it is. But I definitely agree with what you're saying there, Tyler. In that, I think sometimes the act of teaching the obedience is—it's not that you're having the obedience that is the the fix for a lot of people. It's the act of teaching it. It's now that they're they're probably spending more time with their dog, like you said, hundreds and hundreds of repetitions Mm -hmm. to train that behavior. They've just brought in structure, and structure was probably the only thing that's missing. So. And then we, yeah, I agree. We kind of do have to ask the question, like maybe just having that structure would be enough without having to to teach any obedience.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, the distinction too is like, are we talking about um, management or are we talking about rehabilitation? Because there's a lot of situations where, you know, the end goal is going to be a combination of both. Obviously. Mm in any situation that we can just shoot for rehabilitation and not have to worry about management, that's obviously the ideal. And then there's some situations that are more heavily reliant on management. So like the first part of what you were talking about, as far as if you can recall the dog off of, you know, a threat or, you know, drop him into a down at a distance, like that's, that's great for management purposes. Yeah. But of course the problem is then you're always managing. And then the second part of that is, you know, in the cases where it's not about management. Like you, you go through the process of training the dog and all of a sudden the dog's not trying to bite people. The dog's all of a Mm -hmm. sudden not acting fearful, but it wasn't really the fact that it learned those specific skills. Generally speaking, there's something in that process Mm -hmm. that helped bring the dog into a more emotionally healthy or stable place. And so if we can look at that and say, well, then what is it in that process? What, what happened? Was it the owner's assertiveness was it that there was more consistency was it that the owner was paying more attention to good choices and rewarding good choices yeah. was it just simply the fact that all of a sudden there are predictable and meaningful consequences in the dog's life i mean there's all these different things and of course different different situations will call for different elements of that but i think if you can train yourself to recognize what what of those elements are needed there's probably or in my experience there there absolutely is um more efficient ways to go about it that don't require you to go through all the repetitions of teaching obedience. And like in my practice, we would do that first and then we would teach obedience because I do think that behavior problems or not, personally, I think it's a lot more convenient and just a lot easier to live with a dog that is obedience trained, Mm. you know? Yeah. But I also think that if you get rid of that underlying stuff, if you bring the dog to a healthier place, you don't need to be as strict then with your obedience, which is kind of nice because... If you need to be super strict with your obedience, ultimately that's going to mean a lot more of also a maintenance schedule of negative reinforcement and positive punishment on all of those obedience commands. Yes. If you can just target these few things, your overall use of, of pressure of any sort is going to be greatly reduced, and you could be a little bit more relaxed about your obedience. Um, I mean, you could clicker train the obedience for all I care if it gives you the ability to have you know, some control and live peacefully with the dog and tell him to lay down when you need to, et cetera. And so I think there's, you know, there's a lot of benefit in looking at those differences, but I I personally am not willing to throw obedience out with the bathwater completely because I think there's a uh, so much benefit in it.
1: Yeah, I agree. Let me just play something out in my head because I've, I've been thinking about this a, a fair bit recently, but I've, I haven't, I haven't tried to talk, or talk it through, so this is going to be the first time. So it might sound fucking stupid. And if I do, luckily I've got two experts that can just pull me up. <laughs> but I think about when people are training a reactive dog, it, before they call the trainer, that reactivity from the other dog or the pressure that that other dog puts on your dog is a form of negative reinforcement and your dog has likely found a way to turn off that pressure by aggressing towards that dog or whatever and the dog leaves or you take him out of the situation or whatever it is. And I think most people sort of understand and and acknowledge that. And then by doing training, you change the reinforcement history to now be that there's a positive reinforcement available to me and ignore that negative reinforcement. And it's not that that negative reinforcement needs to go away. Now I think about it in terms of imagine, you know, you're training the other way. Imagine, you're doing protection work and my obedience in protection work you might use an e-collar on a on a very low level in normal obedience but then in, in protection work the reinforcement history for, or, and the distraction from the helper or the decoy is higher so maybe I'm using more pressure like a higher level on the e-collar people sort of don't realise the same effect can happen with the other dog the other dog he can't dial up the numbers so his pressure so if if having him there is, is like a 2 out of 10 and without your dog having done obedience with you and, and found a reinforcement history for anything that comes from you, if you're just feeding him from the bowl and that's how he gets his food and when he's out and about, there's never a, an assumption that he might get a reward from you. There's no reinforcement history. So he only has that negative reinforcement history from the other dog and therefore it's always worth him doing it. And he, he, it's difficult for him to ignore that level two out of 10 because it's all that's there. And then when you start giving reinforcements, it's exactly the same as what happens the opposite way with our e-collar, and that you, you then realise, oh, okay, well, there's more distractions, greater things going on. He's reinforced by the help. I need to go up a level to keep him with me. The, the opposite happens only that dog is a level two. He can't go up a level. He is what he is. So it becomes the distract. He becomes just a distraction that the dog is easily overcome with. Does that make sense? Are you understanding where I'm going with that? In, in that it's people just realise it's it's a that dog is reinforcing even though your dog is barking and carrying on at it and reacting that's a negative reinforcement he's trying to push he's trying to take off that pressure and the pressure doesn't the pressure doesn't go away when you have a higher reinforcement history from you it just is so little it's less than the reinforcement that you're giving so he just ignores it completely um sure anyway that's what i'm playing out in my head i think a lot of people sort of don't get that 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 the pressure is still there from the other dog it's just that he doesn't care so much anymore so you're saying that Eventually, the dog wouldn't see a reduction in the level of pressure from the other dog. Well, he in a vacuum, in a vacuum, no. But I don't. But we'd never in that. So he would always. So long as you're with him, or he's, you know, where his reinforcement history has come from, or people now feed him out there, or whatever. Of course, yeah. So you're right. Yeah, he would see a reduction in that. There would have to be, but only because there's a new reinforcement history available elsewhere. Mm, if if that stopped, you, it you, would come back.
2: I think at that stage, you're you're sort of broaching on the desensitization process because you're definitely going into counter conditioning with the training program, but you're also desensitizing the dog at the same time, hopefully. Mm. So the presence of the other dog will at one point will definitely have a level of sensitivity. But I mean, with any program that you're doing like that, the aim and the ambition of what you're doing is to actually achieve reduction. Yeah. So eventually the dog will see the other dog and say, you know what? It isn't what I thought it was there's no point in feeling well there's no reason to feel the way i used to feel because nothing happened nothing reinforced it mm.
0: yeah I, yeah i think to kind of take it one step further sorry to interrupt
2: you're not so, you're part of the discussion
0: So, um, yeah, so I think, you know, okay, you've got this dog who's reactive to another dog, you've got that negative reinforcement history. So certainly you can work on, you know, providing positive reinforcement for an alternative behavior, right? Like, just stay close to me, pay attention to me, etc. You're going to get some desensitizing or habituation. And that's usually because in the dog's mind, the reason that dog that's you know, walking across the street with its owner didn't come over and attack it was because of all the it noise barked, and lunging yeah. it did, right? now you've distracted the dog essentially with your positive reinforcement. It didn't lunge bark at this other dog and the dog still didn't come over and attack it. So mm-hmm. eventually he goes, okay, maybe what I was doing was not necessary. But the other thing that we like to focus on, because I think for me, whenever I'm looking, especially at rehabilitation, I look at um, what people commonly call functional rewards, right? So we say, what is the function of the barking, lunging, et cetera? Mm-hmm. Well, that's to make more space or at least to maintain space between themselves and the other dog. So I say, okay, I wanna teach this dog another behavior that achieves the same function. So for instance, we teach the dog that if it disengages eye contact from the other dog and looks to us, not only might we give it positive reinforcement, but we're gonna also provide negative reinforcement by moving that dog away from the trigger. Mm -hmm. So he goes, oh wait a minute, there's a release valve here. I don't need to scream and shout, because all I have to do is ask you politely for some space and you'll provide that space for me. Yes. Or if I show you that I'm uncomfortable, you'll position yourself between me and the other dog, you'll assume assertive body language and that makes me feel more comfortable because you look like you've got the situation under control, you appear that you you understand me, you understand that I perceive it as a threat and you're behaving accordingly and now I don't feel the need to act defensively, right? So there's mm-hmm. all sort of different ways that we can still use it as a negative reinforcement protocol we can do all this without any positive reinforcement technically although the positive reinforcement certainly will help where we're teaching the dog alternative ways to relieve that pressure that are more pro-social ways right you know more socially acceptable ways of going about that and i think when you do that you get a sort of compound effect because sort of kind of go back to your analogy with an e-collar like imagine you've never felt an electronic collar before and I strapped one around your neck and I put a lock on the strap so you couldn't take it off. And I held down continuous and just started gradually turning up that, that dial, right? Mm-hmm. Pretty early on, you're probably going to start feeling panicky because you don't see the escape route. You're like, man, this I don't know where this is going, but it's not going to be good, mm-hmm. right? Now, contrast that with I, I give you an e-collar. I tell you to hold it up to your own neck. I say, listen, I'm going to turn the levels up. Whenever you want it to stop, just take it away from your neck. Or even if I buckled it and I just said, hey, whenever you want it to stop, just let me know. I'll stop and I'll take the buckle off. And now you know that you can ask for relief from that pressure. Mm-hmm. You probably will tolerate that level going up much higher before you start feeling panicky because you know that all you have to do is ask politely. Mm-hmm. And what we find is when there is a low stress behavioral option to, to relieve pressure, um, the dog will actually tolerate a lot more than when the only way to relieve pressure is a high stress option. So yeah. all that barking and lunging is really stressful. And if that's the dog's only way out, then it's going gonna, it's gonna um, to anticipate stress no matter what. And from the sight of a dog, it's going to start loading up that expectation. But if the dog knows, hey, wait a minute here, If I need out of this situation, all I've got to do is look to my owner or um, duck a little bit behind their legs or whatever it is that we're teaching the dog to be a more socially acceptable but still natural, uh, what we would call cutoff cue, a lot of dogs will start to tolerate higher levels of pressure Mm -hmm. because they know they have that escape route. It's kind of like um, if you ever hang out with somebody who is agoraphobic or who has maybe a little bit of PTSD, if you go to like a restaurant with them, as long as they can see the exit, they're pretty fine.
3: Mm.
0: You know, if they can't see the door, they start to panic. And uh, like I know people even that will be able to tell you exactly how many footsteps it takes from where they're sitting to the door. But I know people with PTSD that have to sit with their back to the wall as long as they can see the exit, they're good.
3: Mm.
0: And I think that's a lot of what we're trying to do also with those reactive dogs, right, is to show them that there's an exit route that doesn't require high stress behavior. Mm. And it works reliably and if there's anything dogs are good at is conservation of energy, right? Because in nature, calories don't come cheap. So, if we can teach them, you know, ways to achieve their goals that use less calories, essentially, I like that. That's a, that's a very good, good for point. That, you know,
1: yeah, I 100% am on board with that. And and I think where so many people, their dogs. Uh, don't trust them i guess because they're going somewhere with the dog and the trigger the other dog in our mythical dog here that we're talking about is going the other way so they drag them past there's there's never Mm. the opportunity the dog probably gives all these signs in the early stages like hey i don't want to i can't confront that this is too much and then you've left me no choice this is what i have to do and yeah but because we're going in opposite directions we have to confront each other and it's i i definitely agree so much with that idea of showing your dog like hey i need to turn around like a signal where he says i need to turn around but then teaching the people to pay attention to that and listening like hey okay yeah we can cross the street and then that can feel a little bit defeatist sometimes to people i think some people are like oh you know but it's like no he asked you like, hey, I need the space, you give him the space. It's not like you gave up. You're not running away from the other dog. You're just giving him the space that he asked for you in, in the right way rather than will we'll make you give space in the wrong way.
2: That's one of our goals, really, in all that we're doing, Like, especially considering we're talking about people being proud of the fact that their dog won't sit, drop, stay, et cetera. I think if people are talking about the pride behind having some form of relationship with their dogs, that should be like an interspecies communication where people are developing a language and understanding those cues. like They're being very clear about it when they see that their dog is cueing to something and there is distress in the area. They should, as you've said, Tyler, before, when you're out with somebody who's got... PTSD or agoraphobia or something like that, if you understand those cues and you're in communication with that person, then the two of you can collectively work together to have a strategy that if something happens that's uncomfortable for them, you both know what to do that's going to have the best outcome in that situation. I believe that's the same for a dog.
0: Oh, certainly. And I mean, you know, if you were in a foreign country and maybe, you know, you were in sort of a rough part of town and you didn't know your way around and There's nobody around you that speaks your language. That's a way scarier situation than if you're in that same part of town in a foreign country. uh, But then you bump into somebody who also speaks English. Mm. You know what I mean? All of a sudden, you get a little sense of relief because you know you can be heard. And I think that's that's an incredibly important thing when we're talking about rehabilitation. I mean, so much of it is... For me, at least, you know, with the work that I do, a lot of it is teaching people how to listen to their dog. Mm. It's, that, it's that two-way communication because you have to develop trust and rapport and not everything is just about you know, learning to respond to this signal in this way. You know, at a certain level, we want to develop the relationship in a more organic, instinctual, you know, natural way. And I think obedience is a great way to do that. I mean, so you know, on one level, obedience provides a framework For you to learn specific ways to communicate certain things to your dog, right? Mm -hmm. If you need your dog to move downward, that's what teaching the down is going to teach you how to do that. You need the dog to follow you. Teaching heel is going to teach how to do that. So it teaches you how to communicate certain things. Just like if you take a martial art and you learn, you know, kata or forms or whatever, you know, the discipline, there's a certain amount of just practicing technique where you're not actually involved in like hand to hand combat. You know what I mean? And you're just learning how to move your body in certain ways and how to make certain things happen or how to respond to your partner in certain ways with with um you know drills, you know, with pad work or whatever. So yeah, I mean I think it's it's not always just about stimulus response. I think we we really do ourselves an injustice if we if we narrow our work down simply to that.
1: Mm. You know, something that I've always wanted to teach, I doubt I'll ever get the opportunity to do this is to have a reactive dog use a brinksel to, to indicate that he wants to leave. You ever seen a brinksel like that they have with... Uh, oh,
2: yeah, they're... St. Bernard's use it when they find somebody. It's yeah. usually used in a find situation yeah, for search so and rescue. Yeah, to for search that and rescue. Indicate they found
1: someone. Yeah, mm-hmm. so the dog finds mm-hmm. someone. It, usually when they're off leash tracking at long distance, they, mm. they grab the brinksel and bring it back to the person. So it's a, for people listening, it's, it's basically a little bit of dowel that hangs off the dog's neck. Yep. And when he finds yep. the guy missing in the woods, he bites that and runs back to his handler and shows him, I found him and you, I'm communicating to you that I found him by holding this in my neck, by, by holding the dowel in my mouth rather than loose around my neck. I'm so curious. It would just take too much effort for the average person to to pull that off with a reactive yeah, dog. Yeah. But I reckon that would be fucking awesome to well, do that's that. Well, the, that's the thing really with the
2: average person that we're talking about. I mean, amongst us, amongst our community, we're talking to and, you know, putting a message out to a lot of people who are high-level dog enthusiasts yeah. that all of this matters too. But when you go around to the general public as we have, I mean, you've done consults with the general public. I'm talking to Pat, and so have you, Tyler. You've done an extraordinary amount, and so have I. It doesn't really matter to a lot of these people how well the structure of obedience is with the dog, providing that they have a level which they think is suitable for their home. They don't really Mm -hmm. care if the dog is doing, you know, like snaps to heel, perfect inline sits, recall to front. None of that really... I mean, I still teach people a high level when I'm doing anything with them because I believe that if I teach them a high level when when I know they're going to slacken off, if I give them a 10 and they get to a six, they were probably only expecting a three. It's going to be a a better situation for everybody all around. Yeah.
0: Yeah. 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 yeah, we're that way with our board and train. We, we, we try as much as possible yeah. when the dogs are in board and train to get them to perfection, knowing that it's going to drop off a little bit when they go home, but it's still going to be above what most people's standards are. Mm-hmm. And that's totally fine. I always tell my staff that you should have higher standards than your clients. Just don't be more committed than they are, because that'll that'll end up making you miserable in your work.
2: Yeah, and that that's a very good point. And don't browbeat them on that fact as well. You've got to have a level of understanding that we're professionals in training dogs they're not their application their care factor for where their dog is 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 generally far below what ours is so what we need mm-hmm. to do and i totally agree with you i have a saying with my staff that's throw a rock at the stars and if you hit the moon it was a good throw and that's what i want for the clients is that we still train the dogs as high as we possibly can get them to and still make it enjoyable and rewarding for the dogs. So when the client takes over, they still have that access to the dog. It's still undisputable that the dog knows that level. But if they fail to maintain it, it isn't on us as fact as the dog. Like if somebody came back for argument's sake and said, my dog doesn't know how to be obedient, what you did doesn't work. I've often proved to people in like literally seconds when I've taken the dog off them and the dog has recognized all the cues that I'm giving it and it starts to fall in line. So therefore I can say to the client, it actually does know it. It's just that we need to marry the two of you up so you have a better understanding of each other and then you can start to take over what I'm doing. So when you're taking the dog home, you can simply see that you have given the dog, well, what I should, how I should rephrase this is familiarity breeds contempt. Because you've had an old structure at home, the dog has recognized those old cues are coming back in the line again. The dog is just like an opportunistic, lazy person and just saying, well, now I don't have to do any of that anymore. I can go mm-hmm. back to the old way of doing things. And yeah. it's simply just passing the baton on to them and saying, you have to just do, at least if they do the bare minimum, it's still going to have a major benefit of their relationship and their understanding and the language between the two of them overall.
0: Yeah. And, you know, that actually made me think about something that I was actually just batting around earlier today. I was um, I was reviewing some of our marketing materials and for the longest time since the day I opened my business on my website in, you know, one of the things about our training, it says, you know, any dog, you know, any breed, any distraction or a dog who listens to you the first time, every time I think is the, the uh, saying that I use, you know, first time, every time. And I kind of was like, man, you know what? Like, I don't really like that line anymore. (laughs) And the reason I was thinking that is, you know, there was a period in my development as a trainer where. I was really into a lot of sport training. I'm on my third Malinois now. I don't really do any sport training anymore, but there was a period where I was really into it. And I was really into, you know, like technical training, you know, stand stand still, give your verbal cues, make sure the dog responds. And that was really kind of the standard I was using and the mentality I was using for training my client dogs. Like Mm -hmm. you should just be able to say the word without moving a muscle and the dog does it. But the real reality is that that's, extraordinarily unnatural for a dog. Mm. And because it's unnatural, it requires maintenance, Yeah, right? It's going to yep. require a lot of maintenance and the average person's just not going to maintain They're not that. Do so it. if you're promising that they can just say those words without having to do anything and the dog's going to do it the first time, every time you're kind of setting people up for, to be a little bit disappointed or a little bit frustrated. And you're also setting yourself up to have this standard where you probably, you know, if you're trying to do that in a four week boarding train, like you, you really have to, You've got to hustle, you know, you've got to put some pressure on that dog, not like physical pressure, but like, you know, just you've it's got to get to it learn. done. Mm. And I mean, it's just not really how we operate anymore. I'd rather teach the client these days how to behave in such a way that they can get the dog to do things when they need them to do it, even if that means, you know, getting up off the couch and using their body language in a certain way. We used to work so hard to Get rid of body language. And I still think that, as you know, at some point in the training process, you need to ensure the dog knows a verbal cue. So, you know, at at that part in training, you know, remove the body language, keep yourself still, make sure the dog understands it. But when we go to like coaching the client, I'm actually spending much more time these days on like, hey, listen, like give the cue. Here's how you would follow through. And when we teach people how to behave in the way that the dog, can naturally understand or more instinctually understand because body language is so much more instinctual to them. And when that's the owner's sort of standard of what it should be, then there's not, it's not really maintenance anymore. It's just like, no, when I need my dog to do this, I do this other thing. And it's Mm. more of a two-way road. The dog's learning how to behave and the human's learning how to behave. And when you make that thing sort of marry together, like you said, Glenn, now it's it it does fall into place better and it's it's more natural to the dog and in my opinion requires then less maintenance, but also like less pressure on the dog. Like we don't have this expectation for the dog that they have to keep up this like super sharp, almost competitive level obedience, or there's gonna be some form of you know correction as opposed Mm. to like I say down and then maybe I need to bend over and point to the ground a little bit. Like who cares? Like big deal. You had to point to the ground. Is that the end of the world? (laughs) You know what I mean? So this becomes a miserable
2: lifestyle for both the owner and the dog. If that high standard that we feel is a practicality in the dog's life is never going to be maintained by them. The, I mean, what we're basically doing is corrupting the relationship between the owner and the dog because they'll, if they see that the dog can do it, but they feel that they can't do it, then they feel um, a sense of failure which then starts to fall back on the dog that they feel frustrated about the presence of the dog because the dog doesn't actually know. it. There's a, like a fragmented communication and they're not in parallel with each other anymore. And that's one of the problems that I foresaw quite some time ago is that The way that I would train a dog is impractical to the the average family who just wants a dog, like you said, Tyler, to behave and just develop a language that is suitable for in-home. And that, that sort of thing is when people come to the door, not jumping up and jumping on their visitors, like learning the place has become popularized with staying on their bed. And that's what I think anyone who's doing board and train or who's working with clients, this message that we've just been talking about, I'm just, I'm relaying all of this in my head right now. I'm thinking this is so important for new and up and coming trainers, people who are listening to this, who are really getting involved in uh, working with clients, going out and doing home consult, boarding and training, et cetera, is you will have a standard, you will develop a standard and a belief of what's important for you. But you've got to also work in the realm of the general public as well. You've got to look what they want, what they need, what they desire because ultimately what we're trying to do is prevent that dog from being kicked out of the home. And a surefire way to that is, like I said, if you fragment the communication and the relationship between the owner and the dog, that's fast-tracking the dog into being put into welfare or worse.
0: Yeah. And, you know, just to piggyback on that for a minute too, because I think, you know, like I remember, like I used to do boarding trains and during the go home lesson, when I'm reviewing the obedience, I would actually tell people like, you know, don't move your body, just say the word. And then if the dog doesn't do it, like, you know, follow through with, you know, leash pressure or follow through with the remote collar. And, you know, the part of that, that I think is really missing, like you said, you know, we have to be thinking about what does the person really want, need, desire. But what about the dog? Mm, what does yeah. the dog really want and need desire? And when we're teaching that style to the owner, um, there is benefit. The dog has to learn our language, right? But what's missing completely from that construct is the owner learning how to speak in a language that the dog naturally understands. Yep. Learn how to speak the dog's language. We know at this point that dogs have evolved to be able to intrinsically read certain human cues, Mm -hmm. right? They've done so much, so much research on this. Dogs intrinsically being able to follow body language gestures, facial structure, micro um, gestures with our faces, right? Our breathing patterns, our movement, and all this without any training. This is just innate to dogs because Mm we have evolved alongside them for, you know, 40,000 or more years. Yet for so long, and I think so many trainers today, aren't teaching how to speak that language. It's a language that is shared by human and dog. It's yep. natural to humans and natural to dog. And the, the like competitive style, while again, I, I do love it, and I think it has its place, it's really focused more on the human language. And a good competitor has to, of course, be able to listen to the dog, mm. right? They have to be listening, and they have to understand the dog language, but when it comes to like working with the average client, We need to also teach them how to just speak the dog's natural tongue, communicate to the dog in a way that doesn't require stimulus response conditioning. And when they learn that and they start doing that habitually, no maintenance required. And now you have a relationship where they're speaking a common language that's that's natural to both of them.
1: Yeah. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah, totally. I think something that is worth mentioning in this sort of uh, realm as well is a lot of the times people who are contacting a dog trainer for assistance or or getting a training, training done, it's because maybe their dog is higher drive than they were expecting. That, that can be a, oh, yeah. a trigger for that kind of thing. Mm. And then having too much obedience with like taught formally in the home can be a real problem because then there's the expectation of reinforcement. And you've got that higher drive dog that loves now to do the obedience because it means that he can bring the reinforcement. And so definitely I agree. Like take my dog for example, right? This is a good example to talk about what we're talking about people not using obedience is I have no obedience over my dog in the house because I don't want him to have any expectation of reinforcement in the house. I'd never play ball with him in the house. I never feed him in the house. No uh, high value reinforcers other than the, the, his presence with people, you know, he's a Malinois. He wants to spend time with people. He's very social like that. But your house is a chill-out zone. Yeah, that's right. And hmm. so the only reinforcer I use is his. he gets the proximity to us. And the only punishment I use is he gets put outside and and doesn't get that proximity. And therefore, I don't ask... I would never try it, but I doubt that my dog would ever understand the context of doing any of his obedience behaviors in the house. If I told him, sit down, stand, heal, whatever, I would never do that because then that would bring an expectation of a reward. But he knows how to chill out, which is what most people want. They just want a dog mm-hmm. that can read the play. He'll get off the couch if I tell him to get off. You've got to have He'll, relief from it somewhere. Yeah. But what yeah. what what's overlooked there is... A, like he would be unbearable to live with then mm. because he'd be pushing you all the time. Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, when Where's I, my reward, let's right. do something. Like when yeah. I get him out on the field out here mm. and I just He's driving be, you. Yeah. Let, he, let's go. Let's go. He'll bite me. Like yep. if I don't have a toy or something with me, he'll be like, Hey, what, what did we come here for? Yep. <laughs> what are we doing here? Mm. And I don't want that behavior leaking into the house. And I think definitely for sure, there's some people who, you know, uh, training in drive only um, <laughs> to, to scarily use that term. And therefore you have a dog that can't chill out in your presence or, or doesn't understand you, you know, you tell your dog to go to his bed and he flies to his bed with an expectation of bursting off of the bed into a tug game or something. So it's fine mm-hmm. to teach those things in a way that like you have to do it motivationally, mm. but you have to like manage the dog's expectations in the environments where you want them to have a low expectation. It's a tricky one, it, it, but I think it, it's yeah. worth bringing up at that point.
0: Well, I think, you know, we talked about this um, just briefly before we started recording as well. You know, I think one thing for anybody listening who's not as familiar, you know, the stuff that you're describing with your dog about how, you know, he's, he's really driving you on the field and, and mm-hmm. you don't want that expectation in the house. I mean, that's also very specific to the style that you train in. Yes. Which is, again, primarily for competitive purposes. I remember – when you guys interviewed Bart, there was a quote that stood out to me because it's something that I recognized early on when I met Bart. But he said, you know, with my style of training, with my system, you have to be careful because you can create a dog that's too strong Mm -hmm. and you can create a dog that's uncontrollable. Yes. And so I think, you know, when we look at how we are using reinforcement, not just the fact that we are using it, but how we are using it, We can we can create problems for ourselves. And I think that's another realm also where obedience can get us into trouble sometimes when it comes to behavior, because I think a lot of times people like the average pet dog person, perhaps not necessarily you guys, but the average pet dog person doesn't understand what they're building in the way that they're using reinforcement whether it's playing certain games with the dog or even just the way that they're using food and i also think there's a bit of a myth that to be successful with reward-based training and shaping that the dog has to be really revved up Mm. there are people out there that that do really beautiful work to a pretty good level of reliability with with just rewards that have really calm dogs if you look at um there's a woman named Emily Larlem who lives in the States. She lives in California now. She's got a, a, a YouTube channel called Kiko Pup. And I've followed mm, her for years. I'm, yeah, a, I'm a big fan work. of her work. She's an extraordinarily talented clicker trainer. And her dogs are extremely, extremely well-mannered. And they're always calm, even in the presence of rewards. And I've spoken to her. She's actually a very nice woman. Um, And we've had some really nice conversations. And she really emphasizes in the early stages of her training, it's all about capturing different levels of arousal. Yes. And she actually focuses on capturing calmness. And reinforcing calmness and the reinforcement being delivered in such a way that it maintains calmness. And she's very picky about, you know, she might use one type of reinforcer for this kind of dog, but a different type for this kind of dog and how she delivers it. But she's extremely, extremely focused on arousal throughout everything that she's doing and making sure that she's not reinforcing levels of arousal that are going to become problematic for what she wants out of her dogs, mm-hmm. right? Cuz that's what you want out of your dog is something very different than what what she wants out of hers. Yeah, yeah. And she does really beautiful work. You know, so I like I do think you can have an expectation of reinforcement without it necessarily creating an an intense dog, but for your purposes, like for instance, like my dog's main job, my malinois, his main job is helping me socialize other dogs, mm-hmm. right? So That might be a little bit counterproductive with if I was going to try to build him up to be like a top of the podium kind of dog. Mm -hmm. And when he first met Bart Bellin, it wasn't my first time working with Bart, but it was was the first time when I had Lobo. And when Bart met him, he said, your dog is too polite. Mm -hmm. And he was giving me a hard time about it. And then it was the first time that Bart and I really had an in-depth conversation. So we were sitting together at lunch and he was learning more about what I do. And he came up to me afterwards that day and he said, you know, I have to apologize to you. He's like, I was wrong. Your dog is perfect Mm. for what you do. Yeah. You know? Um, but he thought, because I don't, don't compete, you know, even at that time I was, I was not in a competitive, like I was done doing that kind of stuff, but I still was fascinated learning what Bart does. But I was one of the only people there who wasn't, there with the main goal of making their dog a strong competitor Mm -hmm. and so he didn't know that Mm -hmm. and so he's looking at my dog going why is your dog so polite but for me it was because that's what he needs to do for me yeah you know that's that's i've got i've got to add
2: to your story tyler that makes Bart a more impressive trainer hearing that story like the point that he identified and apologized to you at that point just goes to show that he's paying more attention and it's not just about it's got to be my style my way he he exactly. actually he actually identified looked at the application for what your dog means to your life in your business etc that's what makes a great trainer that's when you start to surpass the realm of being good and you're actually entering into greatness when you're looking at the overall picture and paying distinct attention
1: to that on that i've had a very similar conversation with bart many times and I think the core of that whole Nipopo system is to reward attitude over behavior, attitude first and then behavior, behavior second. And you know that they're my words. So feel free to, someone can correct me, but I think that's the most important thing. Yeah. Attitude is what you, you reward the attitude that you want to see more of. Mm -hmm. So if, 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 like this woman that with the Kiko pup stuff like if she's rewarding the attitude the calmness that she wants to see more of and I would reward the pushiness the demandingness because that's what I want to see and I'm constantly telling people especially with puppies I'm about to do a, um, you know one of our Patreon live things someone wants to know about making dogs tough and that's what I'm going to talk about a lot is where I just talk about rewarding attitude over behavior I don't particularly care especially what the dog does I'm more concerned about how he feels about what he's doing because then using those feelings and emotions I can shape what he does. But it's application mm. attitude too. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. And mm. and it's, uh, you know, you look at use of, say, Nipopo, it, it depends on how you want to use it. You look at Jasmine's dog, Genta mm. is perfectly flattened out as an assistance dog. And this is a dog who did uh, Jay's SR test, the SR test and got 100%. Is you know totally capable of all of those social tasks can be very flat and calm all the time but can also be brought to action and will play a good game of tug and yep. will play around you know what i mean she she's got very flashy obedience when the time is right mm. but can totally relax and that's through Nipopo, that capturing that the attitude that you want, attitude. yeah, and then putting it on command, like yep. putting it on cue. This mm. is what I want to see now. And you know, with with the with an assistance dog in that regard, it's very easy because they've got the vest on, or they don't. The vest comes off, you get to be a lunatic. Vest is on, you gotta you gotta relax. It's but like it's the not, way you use your collar. as yeah, a Yeah, exactly. Mm. But it's not mm-hmm. that it's, it's not that it was taught through pressure, like this vest is on and you just we crush you. It's just that when the vest is on, the attitude that gets reinforced is this lower state of arousal. Application mm. attitude. Yeah. I I keep (laughs) saying that.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, like, there's no reason that that Napopo couldn't be compatible with. Reinforcing a lower state of arousal, which is basically, I think, what you're saying. Yeah, right? yeah,
1: totally. It's just yeah. that most of the people who are that into it and are going to spend the money to go to the events and learn from Bart and that kind of thing are because… Are working dog people. Well, yeah. yeah. Most um, of the people, in my experience, have 90%. They're just after that last 10%. They are looking for that yeah. competitive edge. They're mm-hmm. looking for that last yeah. little bit to make them better than the, the guy that they train with. And that's that's the type of person that it attracts. There's yeah. a there's a common um, in the there's a students Facebook group, which is a very you know one of the best ones you could be in. But it, there's a common joke in there all the time that you have to live with the monster you create. <laughs> yeah, right? and people are constantly yeah. saying that to each other. Like you get because of the way the shaping works, we some of us end up with a lot of what you might call like the residue from extinction-based behaviors, like, you know, dogs that might bark in, in a behavior because they're just you, you push them to the point of frustration so much that the bark came and you didn't want it, but you, you rewarded the attitude and now you're stuck with the bark. Like that can happen to people sometimes and then we discuss uh-huh. strategies to get rid of that sort of thing. But it's always, that's what we talk about is, you got to live with the monster you create, right? Like mm, you've, yeah. you've created yeah. this powerful dog by choice. Now you've got this incredibly powerful dog. What are you going to do with him?
0: Yeah, I think that's what people have to be really mindful of, because there are a lot of pet dog trainers that like like for me, you know, it took me a few years to understand what like, you know, because I I haven't studied with Bart as much as you guys have, but I did a decent amount of, you know, spending time with him Mm -hmm. early in my career. And it it took me a while to figure out, okay where can I use this? But where is it not healthy Mm -hmm. in what I do with the average dog owner? Because if we're then taking. That right. Like that teaching a dog to push and to drive and to make you work and then teaching that to like Sally, who works two jobs and has kids (laughs) and like lives in a cul-de-sac and just got a German Shepherd because she always had one as a kid. Like that's probably not the best approach you want to take for that person, even though the obedience is going to go great you know, you're going to end up creating behavior problems through your obedience training. Right. And I think that's where, again, we have to make sure we're aware of what we're doing in the process of obedience, because again, depending on how you're doing it, obedience could be part of your problem. It could be, it could be part of the problem, but there's also like, I remember many years ago, and this was, this was back when I was still spending time with Bart on and off, you know, when he was in town for seminars and stuff. And, um, I had a client who had a little French bulldog that they got from a puppy mill. And so there was just husband and wife in the house, really nice, large house. And this dog was terrified of the husband, totally fine with the wife. So the wife had taught a little tricks and stuff, but this dog wouldn't even eat if the husband was in the house. So I said, okay, your first homework is you put the food down for five minutes, get the dog on a feeding schedule. Okay. That's going good. Okay. Now that five minutes only happens when the husband's in the house, but for right now, Food's on the first floor. He's on the second floor. Mm -hmm. So they're not even on the same floor of the house. They came back the next week. They said it didn't work. And I said, what do you mean it didn't work? They said, well, the dog just didn't eat. I was like, well, how long did you wait? They're like, well, like a day and a half. I was like, listen, if the dog's not eating by the third day, call me. Next week, they come in and go, it worked. I said, you know, when did it start? Day three, the dog started eating. Okay, Mm -hmm. perfect. So now the dog only eats when the husband's on the same floor and then only eats in the same room and then only eats within five feet and then only eats from the husband's hand. And then once it was eating from the husband's hand, the dog already learned a bunch of tricks. I said, okay, now the husband's carrying food around in a pouch all day, that's the only food the dog gets, and now the dog has to push the husband. The dog has to has to nudge the husband to work, whatever. I don't care if the dog barks, does sit pretty, tries to high five, does tricks it, no, it, it doesn't matter, but the, the dog has to make an effort mm-hmm. to make this large animal reach in the pocket and provide food. And once the, that dog learned that it could control this much larger animal, everything changed. Yeah. And so that was an example where using the more traditional framework of Nipopo was extremely constructive for that family yeah. within, a, I mean, really only like maybe, I think it was maybe three, four weeks overall, that dog was like running up to the husband and like throwing every trick it knew out, trying to get this guy to reach in the pocket and provide some food for him. Um, and, you know, so there's... You just have to know what's behind the technique what are the emotional yeah. and um psychological aspects of what you're doing beyond just the sit down stay yeah you know what i mean
1: yeah that's a you know that's a classic nipopo po play that you just explained and it's so powerful and i wish that more people could stick through it like there's so you know it feels like oh i'm withholding the food and you're like there is no threat with the threat is so far removed you've got the dog right on the edge of the threshold you've got to get through that and then when you do it's important I think we point out like how powerful that dog then feels. It's not just like the whole dichotomy changes where it's not like I'm not I'm not you go from being scared. Most people then are like, Oh, he tolerates, he accepts the guy. It's like now he's to the point where he's like, I push you, I control you. I'm I'm i make you give me things and for that little doggy in his mind has just you know he's going to lead such a happier more confident life and the spillover will go to so many other places it's not like yeah you know that's going to make him feel a, a, a way forever but you know exactly as you say do that with a powerful german shepherd and you got a problem right yep yep A big, big, big problem. But that's where it comes in—having the skill to to say, "Okay, this was what's going to fit for you," and this is this is get like the the physicality of this doggy means we can make him powerful in his brain and not have any issues from that. Hey, one thing I wanted to ask you about—I've seen a few things for it online. You've got a new e-collar course out. I do.
0: Yeah, yeah. That was. uh, I'm happy that it's finally out because I spent a lot of time on that, so it was a big relief to finally get it done.
1: Because I've seen promo stuff for that maybe 12 months ago so that's been a long time in yeah. the making right
0: yeah so uh, it's called mastering the remote collar and yeah we started the process of planning it basically this time last year and what i knew i wanted to do was film live workshop footage because i wanted to show like mm-hmm. the real stuff not like you know me with a dog that i know is going to demonstrate it well so we filmed two five-day workshops so it was 80 hours of footage we filmed the first one we thought we would just make it off of the first one and then i was like you know what this is good, we like went through all the footage, this is good, but we've got this other workshop coming up, let's just film it too and see what we have. So we went and and refiltered through the footage and then combined everything. Uh, so it was a tremendous amount of planning and then editing down because I, I wanted to find like specific examples of things with a variety of different dogs and handlers that were at different skill levels, mm-hmm. so it came out um, really good. I'm 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 really happy with how it came out. The feedback's been great, which is always kind of a scary thing when you release yeah. something, you know, you like hit hit send, yeah. right? And um, but the feedback's been really good, so I'm I'm very proud of it.
2: And how do it's people really find that title? course. How
0: What's do they
2: that? find? How do they find that? Yes,
0: yeah, so that's on my new site. Um, Consider the dog, which is considerthedog.com it's a, it's a great site. We we're, we're just hosting a lot of instructional, um, video content on there now for myself and other trainers. My idea with that site initially was to make it almost as close to like an open source platform where I can bring on other trainers and they can do whatever they want to so they can make their own content. It doesn't have to be like we go out and produce it for them, which of course we can do and we're going to do for some people. But also that, you know, if, if like me, people just like producing their own stuff and editing it and so that they have more creative control, we just wanted to provide a platform for that. So it's become this really cool community. It kind of grew into to, in different directions than I initially anticipated and got much more successful than I thought it would kind of right off the gate. So, yeah, consider the dog.com is kind of where you find pretty much all of my new content these days.
1: So I remember a while ago you put on Facebook you were looking for like a force-free content creator that you wanted to do yeah, yeah. some stuff with. Is that related to that? Did that, did that eventually? Yes.
0: Yeah, so that's that was. I, I really was hoping. Um, I want to be able to have... So like the, the original goal of this website was for it to be a resource for the average dog owner, mm-hmm. right? That they can just go and they've got basically... It's like curated information instead of like the mess of YouTube where you don't really know if what you're getting is legit. But I also wanted to make sure that people had options to find a way to train that worked for them, that worked for who they are and their lifestyle. And so I wanted to make sure that we had – the broad range of methodologies out there, mm-hmm. and I did find some trainers that were were um, you know interested that were more on the force free end. I think for you know there's a lot of trainers that I reached out to that were yet to get content up from. I think for a lot of people it's it's a time thing. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Like we're all running our own businesses. I'm I'm fortunate. My business is at a place where I actually have like a photo and video person on staff. Right. So it's a little bit easier for me, but yeah, I think I think time-wise, it's a it's a tough thing for people. But I do hope to get I really hope to find some some totally force-free people that are that are willing to be a part of this project mm. because that's kind of what it is. It's like, hey, this is not one method's better than the other. This is find the right thing for you and your dog and your situation, and we want to provide options for people. Mm. And um, we're actually building um, smartphone apps coming up, so that'll be a new thing. So we'll have an app that people can just download on their phone. And then we're going to build some really like simple, like, you know, like when you go to the gym and you see people working out and they like, you know, they open an app, they watch a video that's like one minute and then they just do the technique and then they watch another one. We're going to build some really simple courses that are like that, that are for, you know, average dog owner, you know, beginner people that they can download this app and basically they can sit there with their phone watch a one minute video, apply the technique. Okay. What's step two, watch a one minute video, apply the technique. And basically almost like they're in a group class or a private lesson, mm-hmm. but through their smartphone. Yeah. That's um, cool.
1: Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. cool. And, and is it, do you think that will be, you know, starting from a blank slate or problem solving mostly?
0: No, we're going to start with starting from a blank slate. So we have a lot of problems solving stuff on there. One thing I like about the platform is for me, problem solving is hard to put into a course, because Mm. it's just so deep. You know, you have to understand dogs in general. So what I've been doing a lot of here is um, putting a lot of, like, behind-the-scenes footage. So I've just been having... Somebody film me like in behavior consultations Mm -hmm. and we'll kind of, you know, get rid of the excess and then we'll just upload it and we'll, you know, like we'll break it into parts. So it's easy to kind of navigate and get through little like 15 minute segments or whatnot, but just allow people to see, like I've put up, I think three different resource guarding case studies in the past couple months. And each one of them was tackled in a slightly different way. Mm -hmm. So rather than put up like a here's how to fix resource guarding, it's like, no, here's like a here's a bunch of different people and dogs where the resource guarding manifests itself in slightly different ways. And we approach it in slightly different ways. Mm. And so for me, that's that's kind of the more real world way to approach problem solving. is like people need to just learn to understand dogs. And so we're trying to put out a lot of like bite-sized content. That's why like we have a membership available on the site. It's a monthly membership. So people can just be part of it. And you know, we're just throwing up content every week. So right now the bigger courses are more like topic-based stuff, but we're going to start with, with some really basic basic you know just obedience stuff we already filmed a puppy course we just have to film like some of like the lecture components but we already filmed a new puppy video that's like it's not even like like puppy obedience It's it's, it's called five things everybody should do with a puppy mm-hmm. and so it just talks about how to like socialize your dog in new environments how to get them comfortable in the crate how to get them used to um, veterinary handling so get them used to having their ears and their paws touched yep. so we just go through things that like puppy owners should be doing that are really easy to do and it's just a really simple video. But we really are trying to target like, you know, the millions of, you know, Joe Schmo dog owners out there that are just looking for quality information. You know,
1: that's a that's a hard target to to hit. I think I I, I don't know if I. i've ever spoken to you about it but you know i have a sort of not a dissimilar thing it's an online puppy raising tutorial which i my springer it's heard over 12 months and it's um i think there's 25 videos and each of them's a few minutes long and it's like like this do that and you see her grow up we filmed it over 12 months and but those people who are just the average dog owner who's getting a new dog they're a hard person to market to right like i would say Mm -hmm. of of people who have bought my video series i reckon probably 70 percent of them are Dog trainers, yep. or yep. you know, training enthusiasts already who probably mm. watched it and went like, "Oh, that's interesting!" Like, you know, "Oh, that's good content," but you know, didn't because it's not p- marketed to them. But they're the people that find it. Yeah, the, what, I've, yeah. what I what yeah. I had such a. It's, it's really annoying because like I'm confident in that content like and I'm sure yours is going to be fantastic as well but it's the idea of like how do I get this into people's hands how do I get this people before yeah. they have a problem because well, the
2: problem is is that they're reactive not proactive that's all right. yeah that's the issue is that they're waiting for something to go wrong before they contact a trainer whereas yeah. if we got into their head yeah. well and truly before all this happened I mean half of it would be a non-issue for them and the rate of uh, rescue dogs or welfare dogs or dogs that on the euthanasia list would be significantly reduced
1: yeah that's yeah. why it's, yeah. it's exciting that you're doing it because the more of that mm, type of content out there, the better because more likely to message. fall into people's hands and to get that idea to people like, Hey, you've got this little dog blank slate do start well and never, you know, spend your few bucks on your, your membership, monthly membership or whatever, and never ever talk to a dog trainer. So long as you live, so long as you don't want to do something extraordinary with your dog. If you just want a happy little dog that you live yeah. with, follow this program and you'll never have to engage the services of a dog trainer. And, you know, it's that prevention is better than the cure and, and, it and much, much cheaper. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And that's why I wanted to make it more of a community than like, you know, I, I dabble with the idea of just having my own streaming site for like just my content. Mm-hmm. Um, but that just didn't really appeal to me. I, I really, I just figured this would be a much better project if it was a community of people that all had a stake in it. And that's kind of what we're trying to create is to bring more and more people on board that are part of this so that it's like a central hub. It's kind of like, you know, back in the day, if you, you know, were in New York City, like all, like there was like a garment district, mm-hmm. you know, and then there's like, like like all the, the clothing shops are in one area. So if you're looking for clothes, you go there. So we're kind of trying to do the same thing, bring enough resources into one site. And that, of course, gives us a bigger budget. It makes us a larger company yeah. that we can Do a better job of getting our face in front of the average person, and people don't now have to choose. Well, do I sign into this person's thing or this person's thing or this person's thing? No, no, no. We just one place.
1: Yeah, that's. And you can
0: have access to a broad variety of different well-respected trainers. You know, that's That's cool, man. Yeah,
1: I like it. Yeah,
2: we need to talk to the IACP about doing something similar and recognizing actual international people as well. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean. I do.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we can. I'm, hey, man, I'm. Yeah, I'm was, a free man
1: now, though. You yeah, I was gonna say, man. there's no point whinging to you. You're not even on the board anymore. Yeah. and I'm like, I'm, I'm, I did my term. I'm done. So you'll be there in Colorado this year, sitting in the yeah. sitting in the crowd. Yeah, I'll actually be able to socialize. You can get drunk and get up to mischief
2: this year. You don't have to keep your top hat and tails on.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, mm. it's it's actually gonna be my first conference ever not being on the board oh wow yeah. yeah first time i ever went to conference was my first year on the board of directors so it's, it'll be the first time that i get to experience a conference as like a you know somebody without responsibilities
1: mm-hmm. well we're gonna be there we're we're pretty but, excited yeah, we're definitely gonna bring in the whole kit and caboodle and we're gonna try and um interview everybody and we're gonna cool. just try and do that between trips to whatever the replacement tiki bar is mm. in colorado
2: yeah Pat's going to have his um, two litre Mojito sippy cup. <laughs> Hanging around my neck the whole time.
1: I don't know. Colorado probably has a different drink for me. Yep. Maybe I'll drink it old fashioned Who knows? Yeah. Hey, Colin Collins. Yeah. <laughs> hey, um, Tyler, thanks for coming on, man.
0: Hey, it's been a blast guys. I appreciate it.
1: It's been a fun Yeah, really
2: appreciate it. There's a lot of great information here. As I said before, I think that a lot of the pet dog owners out there who are involved in a lot of these activities going to people's homes, board and train and so forth. This is a great episode for you to have to have a listen to. You know, we talk about NepoPo a lot. We talk about a lot of different style training a lot. But the reality is, is whatever, I'm a, I mean, I'm a big fan of saying use what works in any application to get the message through. I think that's the biggest takeaway thing from a lot of these episodes. Anytime people are listening to episodes is, and we do have people contacting us, which Pat and I had a message last night from, a guy that's over in New Zealand at the moment training hound dogs. But that's one of many messages. And I, I guess the, there's an application for everybody where they've got to put that application into play. I think if you're, if you're listening to that and that's your take-home message, then you got it. And that's the really important thing.
0: Yes, sir. <laughs>
1: <laughs> All right. Hey, um, one last time, what's that website again? And, and how can people uh, get in contact with you?
0: Considerthedog.com. That's where to find me these days.
1: Okay, perfect. Good. All right. Well, that's it for another episode of the Canine Paradigm. As always, if you like what you hear, like, rate, share, subscribe, tell a friend. Doing that helps us get in contact with more people. If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is via Patreon. Three bucks a month gets you an extra episode. Ten bucks a month gets you access to some live streaming. And we're working on, you know, more and different content for that. I'm playing with Patreon more and more and realizing it's quite a powerful platform. We can release uh, uh, stuff to you guys through that. If you want to get in contact with us, the best way to do that is via email now. Send us an email to we are info at the or you can go old school and, and hit us on Facebook. That's it. Glenn, music.